Welcome to the Racing Wire Podcast Network's coverage of the Vintage Auto Racing Association's British Extravaganza from Buttonwillow Raceway Park. Vara's events feature some of the most beautiful cars from motorsports history. Vara is the largest vintage car racing member organization on the West Coast. Race fields are made up predominantly of production and sports cars older than 1979, with a focus on fun and competitive contact-free racing. This race was recorded live on May 22, 2021. Welcome everybody to Buttonwillow Raceway Park. I'm Brian Belansky and this is the Racing Wire Podcast Network and the Racing Network on YouTube's edition of the British Extravaganza uh, powered by Lucas Oil Products. This is the Vintage Auto Racing Association's uh, May races here at Buttonwillow. I'm Brian Belansky. We are getting our action underway today with our pre-war cars. Uh, all of these cars are, as we said yesterday, they are from pre-World War One, and I think there might be one during World War One, but we're going to talk about that a little bit here as well. Uh, and again, I'm really happy to have back with me today uh, Brian Blaine. He was here yesterday to talk us through about these cars, and we had a great conversation, and uh, we're going to continue that now. Uh, we've got about a 20-minute session. Yesterday, these these cars had a little shorter session because it, late in the day we had a we had some cleanups throughout the day and the, the the schedule was compressed for the last couple of races. But when you're the first race of the day, that typically does not happen. So uh, we will get a chance to to head out and and check out all these cars for the next 20 minutes or so. And if you're here at Buttonwillow, I would suggest take some time, put down your wrenches, uh, walk out to the fence, and watch these cars for 10 minutes because. Uh, the whole reason we are here racing today, any car, uh, in any racetrack, anywhere in the world, is because these cars started it all for us. Uh, these were the first race cars out there, and the history behind them is remarkable. So if, you are, if you've got five minutes, and I know you do, uh, to put down the wrenches, walk to the fence, take your hot dog to the fence, and, and check these guys out. So, Brian, thank you for being here again. Uh, we had a good conversation yesterday. A lot of people walked up to me yesterday and said, you know, that Brian guy's good. Didn't say anything about me, but they said you were good. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Of course, you know, that, you're pretty safe on that one. It could have been either Brian. You know, that's so true. You never know. That's true. But I guarantee you they were talking about you. Um, uh, so we're back today. Uh, a couple of fewer cars or one fewer car. I saw four out there. Um, what, what, what's the situation with the field today? Yeah, you know, it's sad. Our, our, the the pre-war fields are getting leaner and leaner every year. And uh, this year we only started with six cars that with all the entries that we had. When this was first started 20-some years ago at VARA, this was, this was one of the largest pre-war uh, events in the entire western U.S. Great. And we would sometimes have 20, 30 cars, and, and now it's a struggle to get half a dozen. So why is that? Is it because the cars aren't around anymore, or the people have chosen to stop driving them, or a little bit of everything? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, there's not a lot of opportunities like there used to be. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then, of course, today's example, and to answer your question, uh, you know, start out with six cars. Uh, one of them broke uh, yesterday. The leather clutch decided to separate from the flywheel. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then uh, one of the fellows that was driving yesterday, uh, John Kerr, in the uh, the Miller uh, uh, Champ car, the, uh, the amount of, of 
dry uh, oil sweep that was on the track when we went out was so significant that he had an allergic reaction or something. Oh boy. And so he could barely see. His eyes are all swollen and everything. So he's decided to sit it out. And then the Allard, or Allard, as they pronounce it overseas, <laughs> uh, uh, the Allard has also packed up. And I'm not sure what, what happened to him. Okay. But we do have three cars. We have 1912 uh, Packard. We have the uh, 1910 National and the uh, 1916 Hudson. Got it. Got it. So you know, we talked a lot about the cars yesterday, and I think we'll have some time to do that again. Tell us a little about about who's driving these cars today. Uh, today, actually, we have one driver swap, but uh, the 1910, the oldest car, is a National, and it's being driven by Charles Test. And Charles great-grandfather started the National Car Company in Indianapolis in 1900. Oh, that's and, pretty cool. And Charles has quite a collection of nationals that we have, uh, Charles and I are very close friends between the two of us. We've, I think we've got about seven or eight nationals uh, that we have restored and that we bring out to the track on, on a regular basis. And uh, the National Car Company is a really interesting story. Maybe we'll have time to get into it later on. Definitely, and if we don't, we should uh, spend some time and and do another podcast, you know, uh, and really, you know, get get into that because uh, as a, I went through college as a history major, and I, I love the history of motorsports, and and I don't know that I can call myself a motorsports historian, um, but I do really uh, pay attention, and I love reading the books about it, and and going to the museums and all that kind of stuff. Had uh, one car looked like he uh, he or she. Went a little hot into turn one and had to slow down and back out of it. You said, though, that uh, these cars weren't made to be on asphalt, so just going through the corners here, even at the slower speeds that these cars are doing, can be difficult, right? Yeah, you know, the biggest difference from these and the modern cars that we're all accustomed to is the brakes are just horrible. In fact, I, <laughs> as I'm training drivers, I tell them, you, you don't stop these, you, you don't avoid an accident in these cars by stepping on the brakes. Okay. You stop with your steering wheel. You know, you got you got 18 inches of ground clearance. You got skinny tires. You could probably drive on any terrain uh, that is available. If you got an issue, just turn and go around it. Yeah. And so that's usually what ends up happening is you'll see the cars, somebody all of a sudden in front of them does something unpredictable, and they'll just turn and go off track and then go back on again. Right, right. And especially here, there's nothing to hit if you drive off the, the, the just off the pavement. It's dusty and, and dirty, but it's flat and not terribly bumpy. So that is probably the best escape route, right? Yeah, and, and brake, they're only, all of these cars are rear brakes only. And okay. uh, those of you who wrench on cars know that that leaves 75% of your braking with uh, nothing there. Uh, wow. they, they had not yet figured out how to make front brakes that would turn and also mm. uh, apply the brakes. And Got so, it. Okay. Uh, they're all rear brakes only, and in some cases they're metal to metal, which is not real effective. Right. Uh, they usually have an inner expanding uh, brake shoe and, and exterior contracting brake right. shoe. So, so these cars out there today, um, are they on the track as they were prepared in 1911 or 1910, or have there been any upgrades for either you can't get the parts anymore or for safety purposes, or are these just like they were in when they when they first hit the track? Our, our group, we, we have a, a group, we, a loose group we call the Ragtime Racers, and our philosophy is that 
the cars have to be exactly as they were when they raced in the day and uh, no uh, improvements for safety, performance, anything of that sort. About the only exception to that that you will occasionally see is where someone has installed a starter okay. so they don't have to hand crank a 450 cubic inch uh, engine. So how fun is that? You know, surprisingly, <laughs> if the engine is tuned up correctly okay. and everything's primed and ready to go, it's just a easy half a turn pull. Okay. It, uh, they have what they call our impulse couplers, impulse couplers, and they actually spin the uh, shaft a little bit faster, so that the magneto will fire at uh, a higher RPM than the engine itself is actually turning. Okay. And then some of the cars have a dual ignition system. They'll have a, a battery system, as well as a magneto system, and you'll switch it to battery. And uh, it has a regular coil and distributor, and the battery system will allow you to crank on the car and uh, start it at low RPMs, and then you switch over the magneto so you don't run the battery down during the race. So, magneto, does that mean that these uh, cars have similar systems to what would be like a, a Cessna, you know, where you have to you know, hit the propeller to start it up? Is it kind of the same idea? Yeah, very similar. Okay. Uh, so essentially what you do, you've got the magneto, you're, you're, you're hot, the spark. Uh, when it comes around, if you have an air-gas uh, mixture in the, in the cylinder, it's going to fire. So it's no different than propping an airplane. Right. Uh, the, the big difference is there's no charging system. In these. Got it. Okay. Okay. And if in many of the cars, like the 12 Packard that's out there right now uh, and the 10 National have no charging system, and, uh, and so the only way that... Uh, that battery stays charged is to occasionally charge it up, but it's just for starting only. So you've restored a lot of these cars. Yes. L let's put the getting the parts aside. How how much different is it to keep one of these cars running versus, let's say, a car from the 60s or the 70s? It, it's it's real different. Okay. Uh, uh, and I, I, I still race uh, and, and prep, you know, cars clear up through the 70s. Right. So... so uh, it's, it's just a different world. I mean, the things that, that wear out and the things that break on these cars are, are completely different in most cases than the things that wear out and break on, on more modern cars. Um, part of it is because we don't have the G-loads that we do, you know, these skinny tires and, uh, and uh, lack of adhesion and lack of braking forces. The cars aren't subjected to the same types of G-forces that the more modern cars are. So what is the uh, situation as far as, you know, back in the day, what were drivers wearing when they were driving these cars? You know, it's, it's interesting to look at the photos and you see these guys wearing suits and ties. And that, believe it or not, there were a lot of guys who raced in uh, that type of thing. But the, the, the common race attire was coveralls, uh, overalls. Um, then you would have either a leggings, which would wrap around the bottom of the calf of your leg to keep the the wind and the dirt and everything from, from blowing up your pant leg, and then uh, usually boots of some sort or, or uh, leather shoes, uh, and then, of course, leather gloves. Uh, as far as face and, and head protection, uh, leather helmet was, was the typical uh, protection, and that wasn't for, for protection from hitting. That was just to keep the bugs and the dirt and stuff from hitting you on the head, and then goggles of some sort. And, and what are the drivers wearing today? that uh, uh, for in, in the cars as they're driving around today? You know, I think uh, we, we had a little confusion. Sometimes we get a waiver 
uh, and were able to run period clothing. Okay. And Jeanette had trouble getting the information back from the insurance company, so we didn't know about it until yesterday that we could have been running them. Oh, okay. You see, like the number six car, which is going by right now, they're wearing period coveralls, uh, and then the number 16 car behind them, uh, they're wearing period coveralls. One of them has a, a hard helmet, and the other one has a leather helmet. And, uh, and then the number uh, uh, 21 car, the Hudson's going by, they're in, they're in uh, appears to be uh, uh, period coveralls, but with a, with, a, with a hard helmet. So there's a riding mechanic. Is that t- today? Well, what did the riding mechanic do back in the day? Let's start with that. Well, the riding mechanic had, had a number of, of, of duties. Um, uh, one of them, and probably the most important one, since you have no electrical system, you have no way of uh, pressurizing fuel and getting it to the carburetor. Sure. So the way you did that is you would pump air into the fuel tank and the oil tank. Okay. And that air would then pressurize the, the fuel, push it into the carburetor. In the case of the uh, oil, you, the, the mechanic actually had, or we call them mechanicians, but uh, the, the me- mechanic would actually have a valve, and he could open and close it and replenish the oil that had burned off and or had spilled out of the engine during the time since the last uh, pit stop. And today the mechanics are just enjoying the ride, or what are they doing? Oh, no, the same thing. They're, they're pumping fuel. Okay. Uh, they're, they're, we don't normally have to replenish the oil because our sessions are so short. But, right. You know, if you think about the first Indy 500, it was a seven-and-a-half-hour race. Right, exactly. And every 30 minutes, these guys are coming in for tires and oil and fuel and, and all of this. Uh, so they're pretty busy. But in addition to that pumping, they truly were uh, mechanics. And okay. so if the car broke down on track somewhere, you know, it was their responsibility to jump out and adjust the carburetor or, or you know, or, or the fan belt or whatever it took. Um, and then with no rearview mirrors, they were also your spotter, which you wouldn't think that would be necessary. But it is on the old tracks, and you see the photos of the old tracks. Mm-hmm. The amount of oil smoke and dust is so severe that you can barely see in front of you, let alone behind you. Sure, sure. Now, if I remember correctly, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, I don't think at Indy you can add oil anymore. I think that's against the rules, isn't it? I think you're right. I, I remember I, something about that a few years I ago. I thought I saw, someone was using that. I think it was maybe Mobile One was using that as a, an advertisement. Like, you know, they used Mobile One because the one thing you can't add on the car is in, against the rules is, is motor oil. It was, it was a kitschy way to do an advertisement, but I guess it made sense. Um, you know, it's it's really kind of cool. So we talked about it yesterday a little bit. Um, what, uh, we and we talked about one of the drivers. Who else is out there with us today? So the, the I believe that the Hudson today is being driven t- by uh, Tyler Gong. Uh, Tyler is a mechanic at our restoration shop. Okay. And uh, this is Tyler's first weekend as as a driver. Uh, he's the one who keeps the cars running and is usually a riding mechanic. So uh, this is his first session. Yesterday he drove the 1911 National uh, until the leather clutch decided to go separate route. And so today he's getting his feet wet driving the uh, 1916 Hudson. And then the uh, 1912 Packard, number 16, which just went by, that's being driven by Eric Ramos. And uh, Eric raced uh, as a teenager. He actually raced in a series of high school teams that uh, at the time uh, here in in the Valley, uh, each high school would build a, a... car and, and would take them to the racetracks like Mira Mesa and places like that. Um, that program ended uh, 
a long time ago. And then Eric came to work for me after he graduated uh, as an engineer. And he's been helping me restore cars now for almost 15, 20 years now. That's cool. He has raced uh, quite extensively in VARA, uh, primarily Formula Ford. Okay. And uh, the last few years, I've kept him pretty busy driving pre-war cars. There's nothing wrong with that. That's got to be a good way. What do I do for, for a living? I, I work on cars from the 1910s and 20s, and and uh, and I get to go drive them. I mean, that's just like dream come true. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he's driven everything from our Can-Am car to to, uh, to the pre-war cars and everything in between. So he, he's getting a, a, quite an experience that very few people have. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I... I Yesterday we had one car with a transponder. Today we don't have any. So I was trying to look at the times, but I don't know if people can hear on, on our, our, our outside microphone. We don't hear a lot because they're only coming by once every, what, three three and a half sec- minutes or so? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, lap times, you could, you could take a nap in between each time <laughs> they pass by. Oh, goodness gracious. So, so you know, talk about the first time someone gets in one of these cars and, and does their, their session – um, how big is the, the grin from ear to ear when they're done? Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, in most cases, people have no idea what to expect. Yesterday, we took several people out uh, that had never been in cars before. And uh, I, I enjoy you know, seeing their response. And in almost every case, you know, they just had no idea what to expect. Seeing these cars go by at 60, 70 miles an hour, it looks like they're just barely moving. But when you're sitting in that thing... Uh, it has an entirely different sensation. Sure. Uh, I mean, would you sit in a lawn chair in the back of a pickup truck and go down 99, you know, at 60, 70 miles an hour? I, I might be dumb enough to do that. <laughs> uh, that's about the sensation. Wow. Uh, but uh, I, I, I have a story I've, I've enjoyed. I, I raced Can-Am for many years. He gets filled by the name of Fred Siska. And Fred was just the toughest guy I think I ever knew. He raced Harleys, you know, dirt track and when he was a young man and, uh, you know, the, the last guy in the in the world you'd want to uh, pick a fight with in a bar. That he was he was the most aggressive Can-Am driver I had ever run with, and he would tease me all the time. Uh, you know, what do you get out of these cars? I don't get it. You know, you why aren't you out there racing a real race car and this kind of? Thing? I said, why don't you come out with me? For it? Oh, I don't know. That's gonna look kind of boring to me. I said, well, just come on. And he says, well, do I, can I bring a, bring a book or something to read? Or uh, do you have a cup holder? You know, do I, I haven't finished my coffee yet. Can I bring my coffee with I just I Just shut up and get in. So we go out on the track, and it's noisy. You know, between the wind noise and the engine noise and all that, you really can't communicate with your riding mechanic. We, we do all our communications with hand signals. Mm-hmm. Tap the guy on the knee, point to the left. That means the guy's getting ready to pass you on the left. Tap him on the knee and hold up two fingers. That means two guys are getting ready to pass mm-hmm. you on the left. And so that's about the best you can do. Well, about halfway through the session, I noticed that uh, Fred's, not, Fred's not giving me signals anymore. And I thought, okay. So we finally come in. We take our helmets off. I look over at Fred, and I said, well, what would you think? And he looks at me. He says, that is the scariest <laughs> thing I've ever done <laughs> in my life. <laughs> and headed straight to the bathroom. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. So, yeah, I think it was the Team Kiwi folks who jumped in the car with you guys yesterday, right? Yeah, yesterday morning we had them in uh, one of the sessions, and then we we also had uh, uh, just a, a walk-up kind of thing where if somebody was interested, they'd come sign a waiver and right. jump in it. So, 
yeah, we had a number of different different people, and and they all come back with a grin, and 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 in every single case, they, it's not at all what they expected. Sure, sure. What else? What else can we tell people? I mean, let's say I'm out there and and uh, I've got uh, a pretty good chunk of change in the bank, and I want to go get one of these. Can they be had? They can. There's not a lot of them around. You know, World War One um, was was unique in a way because anything that survived World War One that didn't get repurposed ended up in scrap piles for World War Two. Sure, sure. And uh, most of the cars that you find, if, if it's an unrestored car, uh, is a car that has been repurposed. If we want to go see these... Well, you know, the, the, the best place to see them is obviously at the tracks when they're racing because there's, there's nothing... I mean, these are in muse- there's cars like this in museums all around sure. the world. Uh, but to me, uh, you know, a car that's sitting in a museum, uh, it might as well not be anywhere. Uh, right. Because you can't hear it, you can't smell it, you can't see it. And the best place to see them is to come to the tracks. Um, these cars, uh, the, the, the pre-World War I cars that have survived and that have been restored run at tracks like Monterey and uh, uh, Sonoma. Uh, we're going to be running at Indy in June. We're going to be running back at... Uh, Monterey in uh, August, and then uh, we go to Chattanooga and uh, uh, up to the Winestone uh, Concours in September. So seeing the cars out and driving, you just can't compare it. Yeah. But, but there are cars in museums, uh, and occasionally uh, some of the museums will take them out and put put around from time to time. But nice. it's, it's hard to find a, the opportunity to, to see them. I'm glad you're here, but it would be really cool to have these cars in at Indy during the month of May, uh, you know, to go between, pra- I mean, sometime in the middle of those dastardly six-hour practice sessions. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? You know, years ago, uh, I, I owned a 1911 National that uh, raced in the very first Indy 500. And uh, I had been tracking this car for 15 years and finally got my hands on it about six months before the 1911 Centennial Race. Right. I'm sorry, the 2011. 2011, right. Centennial right. Race. And they invited me to bring the car, because there aren't, aren't but about two or three of them that have survived right. from that first race. And uh, so we brought the car in that morning, and uh, actually brought it in a week early and did some stuff. But to be there at that track uh, and to be there on race day and to see those stadium, you know, just full of people, and the electricity associated with that, and then to be able to take the car out on the track, you know, the same track it was on, you know, 100 years prior was was quite a treat. Did any of the IndyCar drivers, the 2011 IndyCar drivers, want to check it out and, and see it, and what was their reaction? Yeah, actually, quite a few, and uh, over the years, we've become good uh, good friends with Al Unser, mm-hmm. and Al and his wife, his wife, uh, would, Susan would be my riding mechanic from time to time, and, and Al would drive one of the cars. But for this particular day, what they did is they assigned a uh, ex-pro driver to each car. And I think, if I recall, I think Al Unser drove one, Bobby drove one, uh, Derek Daly drove my car with me, and uh, on down the line. So it was kind of fun. And, and over the years, we, I've, I've had a number of uh, uh, pro drivers, you know, a lot of my heroes that have driven these cars, and it's it's really interesting to see their response sure, sure. To, to what it was like, especially those that ran Indy, you know, back in their day. Right. You know, and and the, when you start looking at the history of what it took to run Indy and, and the, some of these races back then, these guys were, these were tough, 
gladiators. These yeah. they were they were kids, grew up on the farm, chopped wood with an axe, you know, yeah. and for to be able to endure physically what they did, you know, you you had to be not only brave as hell, but you had to be one tough guy. Absolutely, Brian. Thank you. Uh, the checkered flag is out on the session, and, and uh, we've completed our pre-war for today. Um, and I look forward to having you guys out here whenever you come out next. And, and uh, the invitation always stands. Come on up to the booth, and I'd, I'd love to have a, continue that conversation. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right, that's going to do it for uh, our pre-war race. Uh, we're going to put the stream on hold here for a little bit, and then we'll be back around 110, I believe, uh, for the start of race number one for today, or race group number one, uh, our second race of the day. So uh, stand by with us for that. We're going to take a quick break, or about an hour break. And then we will be back after this. You're listening to the Racing Wire Podcast Network and the Racing Network on YouTube.